pretty girl. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Okay, go. 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 Do it again. Pretty girl. Yes, she's a pretty nice type. You got types. Only you, darling. Lanky brunettes with wicked jaws. Leo, compliments of the season. Who is she? Oh, darling, I was hoping I wouldn't have to answer that. Come on. Well, Dorothy is really my daughter. You see, it was spring in Venice, and I was so young, and I didn't know what I was doing. We're all like that on my father's side. By the way, how is your father's side? Oh, it's much better, thanks. And yours? You know you wrote Sping there. I do. (laughs) Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Wall. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are up to episode 12, our first episode of the new year, and this choice is seasonally appropriate. Erica, tell them what we are doing. Hello, sugar. (laughs) To that end, I have The Thin Man from 1934, directed by W.S. Van Dyke based on the novel by Dashiell Hammett, starring Myrna Loy and William Powell, with Maureen O'Sullivan and Nat Pendleton, plus Asta. So what's the story? The story is we've got Nick, who is a retired detective, and his wife, Nora, who are vacationing in New York for the Christmas holidays. And Nick gets reluctantly, at first, dragged into the disappearance of a former colleague, who is then accused of multiple murders. I was first introduced to this film by my mom, who has introduced me to so, so many things, and she's a huge fan of this, and my dad is an even bigger fan of Myrna Loy, which I'm sure everyone who's ever seen her can appreciate that. And I think of it as an early introduction to urbanity. And I can remember watching Topper when I was really young on TV, and that features Cary Grant and Constance Bennett. And I think of Cary Grant as my other introduction to urbanity. And this film was a delight when I first saw it. And I do remember, though, sorry, Mom, being kind of guilted into watching it. She was really excited about it. I was probably in my young, sullen teen years and probably (laughs) was grumbling the whole time and then got really into it and have never looked back, thankfully. Well, I know urbanity really hits you where you live because that sort of thing happens around here all the time. time. For instance, just this past holiday season, we had a delightful Yule Log dessert. We did, a bouche de Noël. And in a split second, when I turned my back, it seemed like you had eaten about 15 sixteenths of it. Darling, that's not how I remember it. Leaving a slice that... (laughs) With the the fork marks? I'll tell it. (laughs) Leaving a slice that, had it been taken to the pound, I sure would have prayed you took it to a no-kill shelter. Because, and I believe, as I said, when I opened the box to see what was left... This is the most ragged piece of boosh I've ever seen. <laughs> to which you replied. Your mom is the most ragged piece of boosh I've ever seen. And that made you drop your monocle. Hence, urbanity. So clearly, 
the witty banter never stops. Yeah, I mean, I was doing that in my evening dress, wasn't I? I think. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Well, I had to be introduced to it at some point because I certainly wasn't exposed to it on a daily basis. Thank you. <laughs> now, do you have any memories of seeing this film or, or any part in the Thin Man series at all? This film feels like it's been part of my lexicon for so long that I really cannot pinpoint the first time I saw it. It seems like it's always been there, just like Laurel and Hardy and the Little Rascals and W.C. Fields. It's just part of the firmament, it feels like, at this point. So I don't have distinct memories of the first time or subsequent specific viewings. It's just ever-present, it feels like. I think... That leads to a question that I have, which is, how do you approach something that, as you mentioned, essentially becomes part of your own canon? To a person who has never seen the film before, how do you explain its relevance? How do you recapture the moments that at some point meant so much to you that it got added to this personal history? I'm not sure. I know when we were watching it that I caught myself thinking a lot about the fact that I was just sort of swept up in watching it and not thinking very critically about it just because it is so second nature to me after having seen it so many times by now that I had to stop and force myself to look for things to point out that would potentially be significant to someone else to entice them to watch it in the first place. And I found several once I forced myself to do it. The thing that that demonstrates about it, I guess, is that its charms are so immediate and obvious that it's easy just to fall right into the rhythms of the thing. And I also tried to approach it with fresh eyes. And I thought back to the initial time that I watched it and probably even the first few times after that. And the thing that that I remembered was the central murder mystery. It kind of goes without saying now it's a comedy murder. The murder part is woven throughout and it's pretty complicated as you would expect from a Dashiell Hammett story. And I really don't think I got it the first time, but I don't know that I was necessarily that worried about it. No. Plot-wise, when it comes to the final unraveling, get all the suspects in one room scene, you realize it's as convoluted as something like the big sleep. Yes. Almost. It's not breezy when it comes to breaking down the mechanics of the murder part, which I guess isn't that big a deal, ultimately, since the obvious focus is so much on the chemistry of the two leads. Yes. And that's one of the reasons why I chose this film. Now, this is a pre-code comedy. Does it feel like a pre-code to you? Because it's 1934 when the code began to be enforced, but this sort of slipped right in before that. But does it feel like a pre-code comedy to you? Only in one or two places. It probably shows up a little bit in Myrna Loy's wardrobe. You mean uh, nips blasting all over the place? <laughs> Urbane? Not, not all over the place, but once <laughs> or twice. In a couple of places. And also some of the sauciness of their repartee. And speaking of that, I think about the screenplay by Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich, who were a married couple. Mm -hmm. And they wrote many wonderful screenplays, most notably The Diary of Anne Frank and It's a Wonderful Life. And The Diary of Anne Frank, notable also for overflowing with witticisms. It is, and urbanity and beautiful... uh, Bon mot. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I think of, for sure. So they were tasked by the director, W.S. Van Dyke, 
to use Dashiell Hammett's novel as a basis, but pretty much kind of toss it out and really bring him scenes of a marriage, not scenes from a marriage, but (laughs) also known for its wittier vanity. So they came up with something to me that feels like a lived-in relationship. So in addition to Myrna Loy's wardrobe, I think we have a mature representation of a marriage that's really interesting and that you don't see in quite a lot of other films. And that once the code came in and you watch the subsequent entries in the Thin Man series, mm-hmm. it's not quite, it doesn't have that, that snap, I think. Would you agree? I would agree. It's funny how far the series moves away from what made it so exciting and interesting to people in the first place, I think. I've never seen a movie so poised to take advantage of the cultural climate as this coming out five months after the end of Prohibition. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you get to the end of the series, Nick is a teetotaler and you are well into the code era. And so... The twin beds become more prevalent and all of that sort of thing. They do, and really button down. And you get rid of that wonderful little bit of physical comedy when they are in their separate beds together, but Nick's getting all rolled around, and it's pretty silly and really fun. And I'd like to talk for a second, too, about what you had touched on earlier. Another thing that stands out in this is the comedy pairing of William Powell and Myrna Loy. Mm -hmm. They seem like a natural couple to me. They play off of each other so well. And William Powell had said that Myrna Loy had the best quality of listening of many of the other actresses that he had worked with. And that's the thing that he really appreciated about her. And I love watching the film and watching Nick, watching everybody else and watching Nora watching Nick. Yeah. And they were such a wonderful comedic pair that they were in 14 films together. This was their second already they already had those rhythms down i think and when paired with a director like ws van dyke who encouraged ad-libbing number one which i think that you can feel in this film and number two encouraged quick and initial takes Mm -hmm. so that nothing would get stale and really required everybody to be on the ball at all times yeah van dyke's shooting style makes this supremely interesting to think about the assembly of for me It's very much what you're talking about. I think they shot it in either 16 or 18 days. There are conflicting accounts. No more than 18 days with a budget of, I think, around $225,000. And that is lightning quick to put on such a large-scale production, it feels like. The sets are limited somewhat. That part's true. But it still was an A picture and was definitely not something relegated to the B unit that they could knock out for cheap and just put on the second half of a double bill. I think his style very definitely played to their strengths as a team. You can see them enjoying each other. The scene where she walks in, where she has the ice pack on her head. Which is my number one favorite moment. (laughs) Where he points to the lint, (laughs) ostensibly to the lint on her shirt, and when she looks down, he flicks her nose. (laughs) Yeah. And the fake smack and everything, and his his rollicking laughter as this other bit of physical business is happening. It's pretty fun. It really sums up their characters in this partnership that you're talking about. Because 
it's clear in that little bit that the two of them are having a blast in their self-contained little world. And when they are sharing these jokes together in the midst of all of this turmoil and the investigation of a crime, you see that they frequently have to put on a straight face for everyone else when they are clearly winking at each other. And he physically caps that little bit by putting his arm around her in, in an odd way. And so she has her side arm around him as well. And it's it's just a lovely little moment. And you mentioned that there are, there are not a ton of sets, but there are a lot of angles and setups. So mm-hmm. to have shot so quickly, he had the wonderful cinematographer, James Wong Howe, on this. The camera is constantly moving and focus is constantly shifting, which is also really interesting. The camera just isn't placed right. with the action happening in front of it. It's constantly moving. It's very dynamic. It's the second point of the things I made note of. Chemistry being the first, obviously, is the big thing. When I was cataloging, what would I point out to people to say this is why this is special the second one is very much that how much more evolved it feels from just say two years before it's not that far out of the silent era Mm -hmm. talkies are still relatively new and when you compare it to something that's still excellent like Ernst Lubitsch's Trouble in Paradise from 1932 and you look at how stagey and stiff Still well acted and still beautifully shot. Mm-hmm. And but, a couple of surprises, but not a lot. Right. When you compare the technical achievement of The Thin Man to that and how much it has evolved in those two short years, it's really interesting to see all of these what seem like new ideas about camera movement, camera placement, and direction in general. And I think about the career paths of William Powell and Myrna Loy, and both of them, by this point, 1934, had already each appeared in dozens of films. They actually both appeared in fewer films after this than they had before. Mm -hmm. So they were veterans, and Myrna Loy in particular had really been typecast as the vamp, and often as the not American, sort of exotic, Anglo-Asian, Eurasian, this thing, this creation that had been made up, essentially. And so she was really put into that certain type of role, and the director had to fight for her. He saw her natural comedic abilities, the story possibly apocryphal, is that they were at a party, and he tossed her into a pool to see what (laughs) she would do. And he felt that she had such a plum, which I think is the perfect word mm-hmm. to describe her, that he thought she would be great in this film. And I totally agree. And William Powell had gone from part to part to part, but was already known as uh, having this wonderful speaking voice and being so light on his feet and having such presence and intelligence right. that I think he, he obviously walked into this a little bit easier than Myrna Loy. And he had the previous film series of the Philo Vance mysteries as well. So the detective was kind of a no-brainer for him, but he, I think, set himself apart as Nick Charles and forever after associated with that part. Mm -hmm. It was definitely career-defining. And you've heard me say this many times before, and I'm going to say it again with this film. I love warm representations of marriage, Mm -hmm. and that is what this is. These are partners who are not fighting against each other or fighting for something else outside of what they have created. 
they are not uh, lying to each other, trying to get something from the other. They're working together. Even though we are in a specific time period where Nora is going to be relegated to the supporting role, Mm -hmm. for sure. But it's elevated from so many other of these comedies in that neither of them is dumb. They're not trying to hurt each other. They're not trying to pull one over on each on each other. There's no person outside of the marriage as well that's trying to chip away at what they have. Nora's relegation to support makes sense in the context of the story, too. It is essentially a murder mystery, and she is not the retired detective. Absolutely. So it's not... Though she wishes she were in on the action and tries to get in on the action. And actually contributes significantly to the solution of the case. So. She does. She's got hair on her chest, as uh, the detective says. It's true. She's tough. Yeah, that, that's one of my favorite things about her character, is that she's resilient and smart, and she's every bit his equal. So when I think about that person who hasn't seen The Thin Man, I really hope that they go out and watch it, because it is a witty, intelligent, fun murder mystery that stands the test of time. And that's based on the dialogue and the performances and the direction. And that's why you choose it to canonize. Yes. Now, would you have chosen this for one of your episodes? Oh, without a doubt. I think the main reason I would choose this as one of my favorite films to put on that eternal list is because it is a perfect balance between two of my favorite genres, hard-boiled detective fiction and screwball comedy. It is a perfect distillation, which is the perfect word to choose for this film, (laughs) of those two things together. I've never seen it handled with one foot in each of those so deftly. Even in the subsequent entries in the series, while some of them are quite good, none of them are this good. Mm -hmm. Handled with aplomb, you might say. (laughs) I I would say. (laughs) Now, do you think that We have a harder time classifying this, talking about it, analyzing it, because it's a comedy. Sometimes. It's generally assumed that with those sorts of things, there's not as much gravity, and so there's Mm -hmm. not as much to sink your teeth into. But I disagree with that ultimately because it's just as noble a pursuit to provide a diversion and make someone laugh and genuinely entertain them as it is to make them think deeply about one particular issue. It's not lightweight like that. For example, the speed at which the jokes move assumes a certain level of intelligence on the audience's part. That bit in particular I'm thinking about, about the Sullivan Act. When she makes the joke (laughs) about the Sullivan Act, how in other lesser films there would have been a beat there, there would have been a moment to underline that here is the joke, whereas in this, it's just lightning quick, and it's not pointed to, it's not highlighted, it's delivered, and it expects you to keep up. I think that's one of the great things about this versus a number of other films that try to imitate it. And after I watched it the first time, and as I said, I was involved in the mystery kind of above all other things, and then it was the the further viewings where I caught... Those moments we had talked about, the ice pack and the physical comedy that happens with that, and a number of other scenes that are really fun, but something else going on that you have to really pay attention to, to Mm -hmm. see what everybody's doing. And that repeated viewing, I really appreciate because it draws out all of those moments. And 
I thought of, again about the way I watched it the first time, the way I've watched it subsequent times, and the things that I've noticed now. And even with this last viewing just a couple of days ago, I noticed something brand new to me, which was that Tommy, who is Dorothy's fiance, he's got dimples. And they're pretty cute. <laughs> and you so never had seen that before? I never noticed it, or maybe I didn't appreciate it at the time, Could but be. I do now. So they... They, they being the screenwriters and the director and the actors, created a formula, kind of an essence. And they it worked so well, they repeated it five more times after this. Mm-hmm. And there are key elements in it that are repeated, especially in the second that came out very quickly after this right. one. With the big party scene and the reveal at the end and the themes of kind of the dumb cop and there's the intellectual character in the first film it's the brother gilbert Mm -hmm. who's obsessed with learning and scientific evaluation and some forensics as he knew it at the time and then in the second film becomes about psychoanalysis which was you know the sort of key touchstones from the time well, you see those characters pop up constantly. That character is a staple. It shows up in everything from these things to to another one of my favorites, Hold That Ghost. <laughs> there is that professor yeah. character who yeah. doesn't catch on that the beautiful blonde is paying strict attention to him while he has his nose buried in a book. This character is a staple for these sorts of murder mystery movies. Yeah, that Freudian analysis was starting to become <laughs> pretty important at that time. And another part about bringing some fresh eyes to this, I read the book about two years ago, Mm -hmm. I would say. And so my impressions of it are based on reading it at that time and not coming back to it since. So my impressions could be faulty. But I really got the sense that the book is definitely darker than this piece. And I think that, again, that goes to Van Dyke saying, use the bones of this, but give me some fun and some wit. And... I think of William Powell as being a performer who really embraced joy and amusement and finding those light moments. And I don't think of that when I think of Nick as the character in the book. Mm -hmm. That sort of lighthearted humor is not something I associated with him. No. And I also got the impression, again, upon watching this many times since then, is that Nora has a bit more of a fleshed out part in the film than in the book. But that could also be... What Myrna Loy just brings to the part. There's a lot to be said for chemistry and the cult of personality when it comes to these things. And when I was searching for our wonderful playlet from the beginning, I was glancing through the official script. Mm -hmm. And there were some elements that were changed even from that. And I think that that's Myrna Loy. Some edges that were rounded a little bit and things that made her a little less combative. And a little bit more warm and winking and the scrunchy face and all of that kind of fun stuff. As you notice the dimples, I noticed the scrunchy face a lot more this time than I've ever seen it before. I remember the one very distinctly after he sent her to Grant's tomb and then she calls him (laughs) on the phone. That one always... Which he can't see. He can only hear it. Right. He can hear the scrunch over the phone. Yeah. But still he knows she's doing it. But I noticed this time around that there were at least two other mm-hmm. occasions where she made the face. Yeah. And I watch her do that all day long. <laughs> Absolutely. My dad calls her his girlfriend. Your dad's a smart man. <laughs> My dad's is Catherine Deneuve. Oh, really? Yeah, that's his choice. Pretty smart guy, too. Yeah, he's no dummy. 
and he pretty unceremoniously sends her off to Grant's tomb when he gets a hot tip and he's with the lieutenant and she wants to tag along but he's having nothing to do with that so they jump in a car and they're about to go see one of the suspects or suspects as the film right. says and many films of the time also pronounced it that way which always kind of throws me off but anyway and he doesn't ditch her because he thinks she's incapable, but because no. it's potentially dangerous. Absolutely. He gives her credit yeah. when credit is due. Yeah. So they're headed over to see one of the suspects, Nunheim, who is in his kind of cold water flat with his oh, girlfriend. such a weasel. And I love her so much. She's the <laughs> she best. She's the best. I love that scene. I love watching it over and over and over again. And if I could have written that dialogue, I would count myself as a lucky person. So Nunheim and his girlfriend are arguing, or as the lieutenant says, dancing around the maypole <laughs> or roughhousing. And she goes through her whole litany of uh, that ends with, and even if I did like stool pigeons, I still wouldn't like you. And throws a uh, frying pan at him. <laughs> and so while all of this is happening, Nick is just relaxed in the chair, blowing his smoke rings, mm -hmm. while the lieutenant, who as also films of this era would portray cops is pretty much a big dummy. He doesn't really know what's going on. Right. He might understand. Yes, and he probably understands the street culture, at least knows the players, right. but doesn't really get the bigger picture. The private detective is always smarter always than the cops. Always smarter. Smarter than the cops and smarter than the scientists, too, which is kind of scary if mm -hmm. you think about arrest records of the time. True. So I, I like this scene because it's a lot different. The dialogue is wonderful. But it also those does kind of reinforce those stereotypes, those formulas that you'll see in mm -hmm. other films, but takes in a little bit of a different direction. And so Nunheim diverts uh, the lieutenant a little bit, is able to escape, and Nick, always the smarter private detective, he's the one on the phone alerting the police to uh, go pick him up at some point. Is that the first scene in the movie that specifically catches your attention? I guess it did this time through since it's the first one you bring up. I think it does every time I watch it. I look forward to that mm. scene coming up because I want to hear that little bit. But the actual first scene that catches my attention is one from very early in the film, which is the big party scene when Nick and Nora are throwing the big holiday party and the camera is constantly moving through all the action, gives everybody a moment, mm -hmm. pretty much all of the extras align to. All the palookas. And... All the palookas goes through the kitchen and the ordering and on and back and through the front door and in the bathrooms. We meet almost every single character in the course of this scene. We get treated to the crying man just missing his ma. <laughs> He's out of nickels. <laughs> so I like that one because I, I enjoy those opportunities to give every character a moment to establish sort of who they are and mm -hmm. what their motivations are in a really breezy way. Right. I mean, it moves quickly. It's not a very long scene. No, it seems probably five minutes total. But you get a sense of who everybody is, right? And you get a sense of everybody, and you get a lot of exposition, too, in terms of fleshing out the mystery. You do, and that action is moving forward mm -hmm. constantly as well. So it's propelling us forward. And we get a face scrunch mm -hmm. in that scene, too, when Nora walks in on Nick, sort of comforting Dorothy. Right. And that's pretty fun. And I really also like the moment, which I haven't noticed before, and I noticed this time around, 
when Nick has taken the gun from Dorothy, she's trying to convince him that she actually murdered the first murder victim. I won't get into names because right. several to, people get murdered. To protect her father. Yes. And who, think, who she thinks is the murderer, and as does the rest of the country and the police. And right. There's a big manhunt represented by the uh, black dot on the map with the net coming out <laughs> effect, which I really enjoy. So the moment is he's taken this gun from her. He's trying to get the story from her that she's trying to sell. But he reaches out and he touches her with his pointed finger and explains, nope, this is what happened. And I can't think of other actors that were so able to physically interact with each other in such a natural, light manner that actually means something. And they were really looking looking at each other and listening to each other. Mm -hmm. So that's another moment that sets this film apart for me whereas in other films you would see it portrayed how i think much more static mm -hmm. and removed from each other he would probably Physically be standing separate. up absolutely he has come down to her level he's explaining to her he's touching her because they know each other right. and they have known each other and in other films there would probably be underscoring at that point you know that that's the thing i hate yeah. most some sort of weird opportunity for him to not be in profile, which is what he is. So they're not framed separately. They're together the whole time mm -hmm. that it's happening. And another movie might take the opportunity to imply some sort of, a, you know, love interest happening. Mm -hmm. And that's not. It, it's the, the it's moment. It's almost paternal. Yes. And the moment Nora walks in, they're back to their kind of co-conspirator right. attitude, which I really like. And then that brings me to a scene later on, which is my absolute favorite of the representation of their marriage. I've talked about other little moments that have happened, but this is my favorite. And this, I learned, was ad-libbed as well. And it is the Christmas tree scene where Nick has gotten his air gun for Christmas and proceeds to do all of his under the shoulder and under the leg and back over his uh, profile with the mirror shots to blow out all the balloons on the tree and then uh, shoots out the glass and pretends to be waking up from some sort of a coma. I really <laughs> like that scene. Completely ad-libbed. Nora's watching him with a bemusement the whole time. The thing I think about often when I see that scene and other scenes from the time period, for example, we just watched... Remember the night. How different Christmas trees look now. I've seen so many times with those balloons on them, and why? Why do you then? want balloons on them? Isn't I that don't an get odd it. Choice. I don't get it. Yeah, I like to go back and look just how differently. Just sixty years ago, I guess. Eh, Eighty years ago. Eighty at years this point, ago. Yeah. How much Christmas tree decoration has evolved? <laughs> it's fascinating. Did you read my monogram on the subject? I did not, but I shall subscribe to your newsletter. Or is it monograph? I think I meant to say monograph on the subject. Sorry. Either way. <laughs> and I think of that scene, too, as a showcase, again, for William Powell. Can you think of another actor that was, I'll say it again, urbane, handsome, witty, intelligent, as William Powell, that would get on hands and knees and put his feet up in the air and do all kinds of these sort of crazy physical moments. Only Can Cary Grant, like you mentioned before. He's the only other one that I think had enough confidence to just make himself look silly. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a, And could athletically pull it off. And, right. Yeah. It's a very charming quality. It's disarming. It makes them not quite as Olympian, yeah. I guess. 
But you're right. I can't think of very many. I can think of a lot of secondary players, yeah. but not leading men. Or your second bananas could do that, mm-hmm. but that's not what William Powell was, definitely. No. So at this point, we've got a body count of three. Well, I think that's everyone. I went back over in my mind, and that is, but it's kind of hard to keep track. But anyway, we've got Julia Wolf who kicked off all of this. She's dead. Nunheim is dead. He is, we learn, essentially a witness to that killing. And we've got dirty this, stool pigeon. He is, and I don't still don't like him. And then we have got this unexplained skeleton in Wynant's workshop. The skeleton, since you mentioned forensics earlier, yeah. is an interesting little bit to me. When they x-ray the remains and they find a telltale piece of evidence in that, can you recall anything prior to this movie that had such a prominently featured detail of forensic science in it? The only other thing that comes to mind, probably because I just watched it, is another of the Philo Vance mm. mysteries. Those were kind of intricately designed, forensically plotted mysteries. Mm. And so it does hinge on time and could this guy have done this and angles and all this sort of stuff that you don't see in a lot of other things. Mm. Didn't show up in a ton of Agatha Christie type drawing room no, murder mystery. No, those were, it seems like, much more psychological. And I don't even remember talking about fingerprints, essentially. Mm-hmm. And this comes down to an actual identification of bones. And sadly, the forensic folks get thrown off by clothing that's left in there, as opposed to, uh, Nora says at one point, aren't all skeletons the same? The forensic folks do, but Nick doesn't. Right, Nick does not. But no, not all skeletons are the same. And did they not know that at this point? Or did they just not want to get into it at this point? I don't know. It's so hard to try to relate to as someone living in 2015, because in 1934, there was no television. Mm -hmm. You weren't inundated with CSI shows. And it wasn't par for the course for that sort of information to be published in the paper. Right. I often think about how easy in retrospect it would have been to get away with so much crime just a few generations ago Mm -hmm. based upon how little law enforcement agencies knew about those sorts of things. Should we get in our time machine and go solve the Limber baby kidnapping? (laughs) Maybe. It's funny you mention that because lately I've been going down such a YouTube Jack the Ripper documentary <laughs> rabbit hole. Uh-huh. And that was the one thing that I've thought so much about lately is just being able to go back and insert myself or anyone in that narrative that could prevent that or that had the skills to unravel that mystery so it wouldn't be lost to time mm-hmm. forever the way it is. I find that case super fascinating. So that question has been on my mind a lot <laughs> in the last few days. Okay. I'm going to keep working. On the time machine, okay. I just have to go back to school and master physics. Got it. So give me a little bit of time. Now, you mentioned that Nick is the one who knows it is not, in fact, a fat man skeleton in this workshop. He knows who it really is. Right. The titular thin, thin man. man. Which is not William Powell, as Absolutely. it was assumed mm-hmm. and how it's sort of implied in the later films. The thin man is actually... The murder suspect slash victim. Clyde Wynant. And so he had he was killed first 
And then everything was pinned on him from that point because obviously he couldn't defend himself. And we find that out in the penultimate scene, which is the big gather all the suspects together and I'm going to reveal who the murderer is. I do love those scenes. You know, and they were in a lot of movies and books before and since, mm-hmm. and it's still pretty fun. There's yeah. a lot of a lot of jokes in there, a lot of opportunities to take aim at the cops, too, mm-hmm. and to get everyone to kind of falsely confess to something and jump up and say, no, I did, didn't do that. I did this other thing, and bigamy is revealed, and right. on and on and on. Whereas up to that point, It's all about the science and detection. The assembly of the suspects is where the psychology really comes into play. And watching him pit certain characters against other characters, you're right, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And we've got not one but two gigolos in the scene, too. (laughs) And so that's always fun. Gigoli? Gigoli, I think so. Uh, a murder of gigolos, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Is that what they're called? So, and, and I think it's the a little bit of the pre-code, too. Dorothy is brought in and she's tipsy and she was about to run off with uh, one of the gigolos from the original party who was trying to make a move on her way back earlier in the movie. And then we learn that Chris, played by a very young Cesar Romero, is he looks already an awful married. Lot like Ben Affleck. Does he? I think in this. That's huh. who I immediately thought of. Do you want me to do my Ben Affleck impression? Sure. It's not going to read on the podcast, though, but I'll do it just for you. Okay. <laughs> you're right. It won't read. But, <laughs> but I you're can, welcome. I can vouch for that being spot on. <laughs> so Cesar Romero is already married, so his marriage to uh, Mimi is invalidated, which gives Nick the opportunity to get her to finally reveal she knew who the murderer was or she put it together maybe i don't know did she know right away or did that come kind of later no on? she knew okay and then the murderer is revealed to be macaulay winant's lawyer who was uh stealing money from him essentially for a long period of time and he was the one who murdered everybody and made it seem like winant had done it and was on uh the loose somewhere out there so as we mentioned we've seen it before and since it's a pretty solid element. I guess that's why it gets used a lot. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fun to bring everybody together and see what happens. And Nick reveals to Nora, well, it's, it's the only way it explains what happened, really. So he's not entirely sure. He's got to make somebody show their hand, finally. Right. So the murder is solved. Murder is solved. And the lovers are reunited, Dorothy and Tommy, he of the dimples I mentioned earlier. And they are on the train headed back out west with Nick and Nora. And we're treated to a little bit of uh, innuendo with the, is it bedtime? And then the train going through the tunnel. Does the train go into the tunnel? No, but it makes a lot of noise and you see it taking off and you know what's happening. In your mind, the train went into the tunnel. (laughs) Just another reason why I married you. Thank you. Now, one thing we haven't gotten into yet is a discussion about essentially the sheer amount of alcohol that's consumed in the film. It was right after the end of Prohibition. Right. But even for that, Nick as a character, Nick and Nora together, but primarily Nick as a character, is constantly drinking. And I don't know what else to say about it, really, besides that. It's kind of jarring to me to watch that now and imagine, in real terms, what life would have been like. Right. In this context, in in our current context, yes, it's jarring. But like I mentioned before, when you are 
five months past the repeal of prohibition and it's happy days are here again. And mm-hmm. I think the audience clearly voting with their ticket buying dollars demonstrated how much they wanted to see that sort of enjoyment revelry, mm-hmm. I guess, for lack of a better phrase, because it was the fifth highest grossing film of 1934. And that is somewhat based upon the chemistry of the leads and the entertainment provided. But I think it's also, like I said, it's zeitgeist. It's very yeah. much tapping into what the cultural climate was at the time and how much people wanted to reassert their right to celebrate in that fashion. And I think back to the first time that we see Nick, and also this was an ad lib, when he's shaking... Was it a martini or a Manhattan? I can't remember. A Manhattan, I want to say. And so that's all William Powell making all of that up. But He didn't even know that was going in the film. Right. That establishes the character right away. Mm -hmm. And it's woven throughout. And as you mentioned, though, earlier, something that falls away in the subsequent films. Right. Jarring is the exact word I would choose because looking at it through 2015 eyes you would say that character is an alcoholic and has a problem. I don't understand how he's functioning at Mm -hmm. that point. And it's in the morning, in the evening, in the afternoon, in the middle of the night, and it's all the time. Right. So if they remade that now, what would they replace that with? Or would it be a hard-bitten, leaving Las Vegas sort of... That's that's much more how the book feels to me. Mm -hmm. I think that element is... Well, arguably... In the film, the alcohol is played for laughs. Mm-hmm. In the book, there's no hint of that to me. Again, I could be not remembering it accurately, but it's just a, a thing that happens, but it's not a sort of, hey, isn't this fun? In the book, at most, it's supposed to be an indicator of sophistication, mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. a comic element. And maybe also that, is it that element of a person who can handle their liquor is more respected than someone who can't i don't i don't know could be, it could to be me implying. it reads more like it's an indicator that this is a man of leisure mm. and has no other responsibilities but if it had been if we were talking about a remake now it would probably be crystal meth and then it would go down some really dark directions <laughs> or would they just replace it with a completely harmless device a la kojak's lollipops or mm-hmm. some other device They'd be fitness enthusiasts. I don't know. <laughs> I just know. They'd just be doing it all the time, probably. Could be. What do people of leisure do now? I don't know. Do I know any of those people? I oh, I do. Actually, honestly, sadly, they do just all drink a lot, it seems like, when I think about them. Or go swimming pools. They go swimming a lot. So happy days are still here. I, they, they still are, I guess. Good for them. <laughs> Well, we've now exhausted every single possibility for the film. We've covered it from start to finish with the deepest critical analysis anyone could (laughs) ever possibly bring to the film. Not really, but it was quite fun. So that leads us to the end of the episode, which is our recommendations portion. So what is your recommendation? I am going to stick with Myrna Loy and Uh go back a couple of years to one of those exotic fatales that you mentioned and i recommend the mask of fu manchu from 1932 directed by charles braben also starring boris karloff which is far and away the best of all of the fu manchu films at least that i have ever seen it is definitely a pre-code artifact yes 
and I would recommend you watch it just to see how provocative it gets. Mm -hmm. It is insensitive in places, (laughs) to say the least, (laughs) but to see the fervor with which Boris Karloff delivers that speech to his minions, exhorting them to kill the white man and take his women, (laughs) and to also see... The sadomasochistic glee, I would beyond glee, she she might as well be touching herself, with which Myrna Loy watches a particular whipping scene. Whoa. It's beyond saucy. It is definitely super fun and super interesting. You're not going to see anything like it these days, that's for sure. What would the remake be? <laughs> German uh, dark bondage? Films are the only ones that could handle it. They would have to separate it out into things. You would have to totally take away and just dispense with any element of dealing with the racial aspects uh, of it. Yeah. Because it's simply not allowed. And yeah, so you're stuck with slinky gowns and whips and chains. Oh, that doesn't sound too bad. No. I like when Myrna Loy says, he is not unhandsome. <laughs> I enjoy that. So, what's your recommendation? Well, I am going to recommend something from one of the other stars of this film, which is Skippy. Skippy played Asta, the dog. And Skippy also features in one of your favorites and mine, and that is 1937's The Awful Truth. I do love that one. Absolutely. With Cary Grant, the other urbane man about town, and one of your favorites, Irene Dunn, Mm -hmm. which also you're no dummy. She's pretty fantastic. And this is a wonderful screwball comedy, which also features another fun portrait of marriage and all of the ups and downs that happen in it. And I think one of your favorite moments would be Irene Dunn's song and dance number. Gone with the wind. <laughs> that. It's a joy. That's a top 10 moment, maybe, for me. She is so funny and so underrated. As a comic performer. Do you think she was underrated? I do. Because she's really high up there for mm, me, and she was so popular. I don't think she was given credit for being as funny as mm, she is. Okay. Also, because she's hilarious. And another person that radiates intelligence mm-hmm. to me, too. That's probably so. why I like her so much, actually. It's a really fun one. Check it out and uh, enjoy. And that brings us to the conclusion of another episode. If you would like to get in touch with us... You can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. Just search Magic Lantern Podcast and that will get you there. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to say thanks to a bunch of people who tweeted about the show since our last episode. Grindhouse Dave, Craig Eastman and the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Aaron West and Mark Herney at Criterion Close-Up, Warren Whitlock and Jeff Duncanson. We certainly appreciate it. If you would like to check us out on iTunes, we are there as well as Stitcher Radio. One click gets you subscribed, and then you'll just receive new episodes whenever we release them, which is every other Monday. We'd certainly appreciate it if you feel like leaving us a rating or review. Anytime you do that, it makes us more visible and helps other people find the show. We certainly appreciate it when you take the time. And we have a website, magiclanternpodcast.com, where you can find all of our episodes, as well as supplemental material in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.